This is Douchy's Biology, recorded Wednesday, the 3rd of August, 2022. Immunity questions and answers. Isn't this the coolest way to study? You're waiting at the bus stop or the train station. You've got your AirPods in. Look around. Everyone who sees you thinks you're listening to some cool music. Well, let's let them think that, shall we? Just nod your head and tap your foot. I won't tell them what you're really listening to if you don't. It'll be our little secret. And in the meanwhile, let's study biology. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few weeks since the last episode. Um, Sorry about that. I've actually been away on a little bit of a holiday uh, in North Queensland, enjoying an escape from Victorian weather. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, I'm back here now and uh, back into the podcast again. This episode is going to be a little bit different to previous episodes because I'm not going to introduce a new topic or anything like that. We're going to look at the things we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, the immune system. Uh, but I'm going to respond to questions that many of you have sent in to me. There have been a lot of questions asked, and that's what we're going to address in this episode of the podcast, because the immune system is really complicated, and not surprisingly, um, it's hard sometimes to put the pieces together in your mind. The purpose of this episode is to help you to do exactly that. Uh, I hope My hope that by the time we get to the end of this episode, those nagging questions, the things that you don't quite understand or that you're a bit unsure about, we will have got to the bottom of those. Before I do that, though, I want to address some questions that people have sent in that are not about the immune system. They're still important. They're just perhaps not as complicated as the immune system. So I've sort of grouped all the immune system questions together uh, and we'll address a couple of other questions that are, that are perhaps easier to address to begin with. The first question comes from listener Sinewer. And Sinewer says this, I was wondering whether we need to know everything in the CRISPR-Cas9 video on Ed Rollo for the exam as my textbook doesn't go into that much detail. Well, thanks for that question, Sinewa. Um, It's a good question. And you may have noticed, if you've got a textbook, that it, it doesn't deal with CRISPR in a lot of detail at all. And then you've looked on Ed Rollo and you've seen my video there, which has <laughs> got lots of detail. Um, and if you don't have Ed Rollo at your school, I made a similar video and you'll find that on YouTube if you look for me there. Um, but I've gone into quite a bit of detail about CRISPR uh, in those videos. And I think it's probably helpful if I tell you the backstory to why I've done that. When the study design was published last year, I first thought that we wouldn't need to know a lot about CRISPR. We wouldn't need to go into a lot of detail. I didn't think, you know, I thought that you'd need to know what CRISPR was, what it's used for, that sort of thing in general terms. But you wouldn't need to know specific details like about the PAM, the protospacer adjacent motive. You wouldn't need to know about, you know, protospaces and spaces and single guide RNA and all of that. So I didn't think that that sort of level of detail would be needed. Um, But then 
Early this year, sort of partway through the year, I think it was about March, VCAR published a document they called the Frequently Asked Questions, or FAQs, which went into some detail about what they were expecting students to know about CRISPR. And they mentioned things like sgRNA and the PAM and all of that sort of thing. And it became very clear that VCAR had much greater expectations (laughs) of your knowledge of CRISPR than I had thought they would require. So I went back into the Ed Rollo studio and recorded a new video to make sure that we'd covered all the stuff that you could possibly need to know. And that's why that video has a lot more detail. Needless to say, of course, the textbooks were all published prior to the FAQ document being released. And the textbooks don't have the liberty of being able to just go in and, you know, rewrite one chapter and have all your textbooks updated the way that Ed Rollo can. So, you know, if you've got a textbook from Jack Aranda or Nelson or Pearson or something like that, probably the description of CRISPR in your textbook may well be sort of fairly simplistic. Now, having said all of that, I think probably in the video that I that I made, I've probably gone into more detail than you need. You know, I've talked about non-homologous end joining and um, homology-directed repair, um, tracer RNA as well as the sgRNA, and you know, all that, that sort of thing. If you've watched the video, you know what I mean. I've gone into quite a lot of detail. You probably don't need quite that much depth. Um, I'm I don't think you need to know about CAS1 and CAS2, for example. Um, In fact, VCAR have subsequently, in a follow-up to the FAQ document, they've said that you don't need to know about any CAS enzymes except CAS9. So you don't need to know about CAS1 and CAS2. Um, I can say that quite confidently. But I still think it's actually helpful to know it. I think it's actually helpful to know the detail that I've put into that video because it gives you that full, rich understanding of of what the CRISPR system is about and and what it does. So my advice to students would be, if you're capable of remembering and understanding the whole thing, I don't think it really hurts to do that at all. But if you're really struggling, then what you absolutely need to know is you need to know about the PAM, the protospacer adjacent motive. You need to know that in a laboratory, scientists can use a single piece of RNA called sgRNA, single guide RNA, to kind of program a Cas9 enzyme. Okay? Um, and you need to know that in a bacteria, the CRISPR-Cas9 system is kind of a primitive adaptive immune system. It's, a, it's the way that a bacteria can protect itself from future attacks by the same virus that it's already encountered. So you certainly need to know that kind of detail. And you need to know that it you know that the the cas9 enzyme when it when the single guide rna matches a sequence of bases upstream of the pam that it will cut the dna on both strands it causes a double strand break and that that can either be used to insert a foreign gene into the dna or it can be used to induce a mutation okay so you you certainly need to know all of that do you need all the detail i've put in the video Probably not. But sometimes I think it's actually easier to know it all in detail, even if it's not actually finally required on the exam. You know, it's it's obviously better to know more than you need than less than you need. And, you know, one thing that we've learned from this FAQ document that VCAR's published is that they do require a greater level of depth than I think 
almost anybody was expecting. So, you know, I've tended to probably err on the side of providing more detail than required. Um, but, um, but yeah, probably I've, I've provided more than you really, really need. Um, but I would hate to think that you go into the exam and there's a question about CRISPR that you can't answer because I didn't address it. So, you know, that's the approach that I've taken. Our next question comes from Hanbull, who also asked about CRISPR and said, what is off-target editing of CRISPR? And what ethical concerns over allergy are there to Cas9? Um, you know, this may be something that's been raised in a sack, I would, I would gather, but Anyway, let's address those questions. So firstly, off-target editing is a sort of a problem in CRISPR. And because, you know, when we teach CRISPR, <laughs> when I teach CRISPR, I sort of teach it the way, almost as though it's perfect, right? That, that you know, you put this sgRNA into a Cas9 enzyme and then it'll travel through the cell. And when it finds a sequence of DNA that's complementary to the 20 or so bases you know, in, in that sgRNA upstream of the PAM, it'll cut the DNA at a very precise and known location as though it can't make mistakes. But the reality is that it's a bit more sloppy than that. And in fact, it often, you know, Cas9 often will cut in the wrong place. You know, that whole 20 base sequence upstream of the PAM um, often doesn't even quite get used. And it's, it's, it's usually the first, you know, maybe eight or nine bases that are the most important and sometimes Cas9 will just cut in the wrong place. And that's called off-target editing. And it's a problem for people who use CRISPR-Cas9 to edit a genome. You know, obviously, you don't want to be causing mutations in, the, in an undesirable place. Now, there's a lot of research that's being done at the moment, and, and you know, already some sort of altered Cas9 enzymes have been produced in laboratories, which reduces the amount of off-target editing. So, you know, this this area of science is developing at a, you know, a very fast pace and already the Cas9 enzymes that are being used do a, a lot less off-target editing than was the case before, but that's what that is. Um, and as far as allergies are concerned, you know, there's there's been some research, you know, people have found for example that if you inject Cas9 enzymes into a person, some people will have an allergic response to it. And of course that's not surprising because Cas9 is a protein. Um, and you can have an allergic response to a foreign protein that gets into your body. I mean, people have allergic responses to peanuts and bee venom and you know various other kinds of compounds. Any foreign protein that gets into your body can cause an immune response. And of course, that immune response, if it if something goes wrong with it, can be that that protein can be an allergen and cause an allergy. So, you know, it's not surprising that that would be the case for Cas9 as well. It does mean, of course, that if we're using Cas9 to edit human genomes, you know, allergies are, is something that that you know, needs to be taken into consideration. That's a potential problem. But it's also a potential problem if we're using the Cas9 enzyme to edit the genome of plants that are used for food crops, right? Because let's say you're using Cas9 to edit um, wheat, for example, and then you make bread out of the wheat, but that the cells in the, you know, in the flour will now have Cas9 enzymes in them. And that's a foreign protein. And you eat that wheat, you're taking in a foreign protein into your body. It's possible that you could have an allergic response to that Cas9 enzyme. 
Um, again, just like you could to any foreign protein. Uh, so I don't think it's probably any more dangerous than any other foreign protein, but that's a concern that has been raised by some people about using Cas9 to edit the genome of crops. Another question comes from listener Jasmine and Ishan and actually a few other people have asked the exact same question, is when is the right time to start doing practice exam questions? There seems to be a sort of a feeling, a lot of people have this feeling that you shouldn't look at past exams until you've finished the course. You know, maybe leave it till late September, you know, when you've finished covering the whole course, then start looking at past exam papers and doing practice exams. I, however, think that there is no time that's too early to start looking at practice exams. Now is the perfect time if you haven't already started, uh, but I don't think it's ever too early to start looking at practice exam questions. Um, that doesn't mean that you can do them as a practice exam. Of course, there's no point sitting down and doing a two and a half hour exam that covers the entire course if you haven't finished the entire course. That's kind of a given. But that doesn't mean that you can't look at past exam questions about the things that you have covered. And in fact, I think that's a fantastic way to study. It's a fantastic way to start preparing for the exam now. I call it topical exam-based study, and this is how I would approach it. Let's say that you're currently studying mutations. A lot of you are probably just about up to that point in the course. So you're just currently studying mutations. What I would recommend that you do is have a look at every exam question that has ever been asked about mutations on a VCAR paper. If you go to the VCAR website, you can download every VCAR end of year exam since 2002. That's almost 20 years worth of exam papers. Now, of course, most of those will have lots of questions in them that are irrelevant because the course has changed a number of times since 2002. Uh, so, you know, you might be looking, you might find a question about mutations. The very next question might be about Punnett squares or pedigrees or something that you don't need to know about anymore in the current course. But that doesn't matter. The question about mutations will still be really useful for you studying mutations now. That's how I would use these exam papers. You know, if you go through every question that VCAR has ever asked about mutations in a fairly short period of time, you know, do that for half an hour, in half an hour you will get a very clear idea about what VCAR expects you to know about mutations. Now, of course, you won't find questions about CRISPR or the trip operon or, you know, some other topic. So, you know, you can't study every topic this way, but things that have always been in the course, like mutations, like natural selection, you know, a lot of those, like the immune system, you'll find lots and lots of questions about the immune system. Um, and that will give you a very clear idea about the sorts of things that you need to know and how you need to explain things. Now, there's a couple of caveats to that, a couple of things I want to just add to that. Um, one is that this is a new course and some of VCAR's expectations do seem to have shifted a little bit. So that means that just because they've only asked to a certain level of depth in the past about something doesn't necessarily mean that they'll require the same level of depth this year. Okay, so that's an important thing to say. Um, but your guess is probably as good as anybody else's. And, and I think a really good way to sort of get a sense of what VCAR wants is to look at those past exam papers. One other thing that I'll say is that, of course, all of those past exam papers 
are completely useless as practice exams. Even once you've finished the course, you won't be able to use them for practice exams because they've got irrelevant questions in them. Even last year's exam will have questions about signal transduction and things like that that aren't in the course anymore. So this is really the only effective way that you can use those past exam papers. Of course, you will want to do some practice exams once you've finished the course, and that makes perfect sense. But those practice exams will either be exams that are produced by third-party companies like Access Education or TSSM or something like that, NEEP make one. Um, It'll either be that, or there is a VCAR-produced exam paper that they've produced for the Northern Hemisphere. Because some people, some students do VCE, in like North America and England and so on, for whatever reasons they do VCE, and VCAR makes an exam paper for them. And they've already had their exam, and you can get that from the website as well. You take a little bit of Googling, but you'll, you'll find it if you look for the Northern Hemisphere Biology exam for 2022, and that will be a very useful exam for you to have a look at because, of course, it covers the current study design. You may even want to leave that one and use it as a practice exam later on. All right, let's get into some of these questions about the immune system. That's what you came here for. That's what I came here for mostly uh, is to talk about these. There have been a lot of questions sent to me about the immune system. And one reason I think probably the main reason why that is the case is because the immune system is endlessly complex. It's endlessly complicated. Just when you think you understand it, you find something or you read something that shows you that you had a wrong understanding about it. That happens to me all the time. Just yesterday, I was reading some things about plasma cells that I I didn't know before. Um, new research shows interesting things that you know nobody knew, right? This is happening all the time. So if you've been learning about the immune system and you feel a little bit confused by it, well, that's not because you're dumb. That's because it's really confusing. (laughs) So take heart in that. And of course, whenever anything is really confusing, when teachers teach it, they're going to simplify what they're saying, right? And the same is true for textbooks. The same is true for Ed Rollo. The same is true for YouTube videos, whatever websites that you read. When people are trying to explain something that's complex, they're going to simplify it to make it accessible so that the reader or the listener isn't overwhelmed by detail. The pro- therein lies the problem, right? Is that if you've got two different textbooks and they're both simplifying how the immune system works to make it accessible, they may leave different details out. And then for a student who reads those two textbooks, they get stuck thinking that the two sources are contradicting each other. Right? An analogy for this I was, I was thinking of is like, you know, when you're a kid and, you know, you ask your mom or your dad, where do babies come from? <laughs> and they obviously don't tell you the answer in great detail. They give you some kind of an answer, right? I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people would tell their kids, well, you know, when a mummy and a daddy love each other very much, well, a baby starts growing in the mummy, right? You know, now, obviously that's not untrue, but it leaves a lot of details out, okay? And a different kid might be told a different version, right? That's also not untrue, but, but it leaves different details out or it explains it in a different way. And I suspect that, you know, if, if you're adopted, um, then your parents would explain 
explain things to you slightly differently again. And if you're an IVF baby, you'd get probably a different explanation, right? Because because that explanation wouldn't work for you. So you get all these people. Now, all of those things, you know, all the explanations that are given to kids, they're not untrue as explanations of where babies come from, but they're they don't go into all the details because the kid who's asking isn't ready for those details. So what they get is a simplified version of the truth. And once you start comparing one simplified version with another simplified version, sometimes they seem to be contradicting each other. And that, I think, is what often happens when people learn about the immune system. You know, you read your textbook, for example, and it provides one kind of simplified explanation of what B cells do. And then you watch a video on YouTube and it provides a different simplified explanation of what B cells do. (laughs) And they seem to contradict each other. And so it just leaves you feeling really confused. All right. So what I want to do with a lot of the questions that have come in about the immune system is I'm going to tell you some things that you probably haven't read in your textbook. You know, in order to join the dots between these different sources to see how they're not really contradicting each other. But of course, you know, the danger in doing that is that now you know too much and it makes you unsure of what you should write on an exam, you know, whether you should (laughs) write what's in your textbook or these extra things that I'm telling you. So where it's appropriate, I'm also going to tell you what I think you should write on the exam. Sort of that VCAR exam level knowledge that you should supply. All right. So I hope that that makes some sense. All right. The first question comes from listener Muhammad, who says this. He says, I had a question regarding the degraded proteins that cells put on their MHC markers, using them as their self-markers. Does the cell replace these degraded proteins over time? If so, is it a regular process or does it happen once or twice? All right. Well, Firstly, cells are covered in MHC, like they've got MHC all over them, and they're constantly loading new MHC complexes onto the membrane. And we'll talk about that shortly. Um, So new MHC proteins are continually being moved up and put on the surface of the cell. Um, And proteins are being displayed on those MHC. But it's not just proteins from you know viruses and things that are presented there it's bits of protein from the cell itself so you know this is why they're self antigens right is that it's a little bit like here's a good analogy i think is imagine in your house that you went around your house and everything that you found you broke bits off it and stuck them up on the roof, right? On the tiles on the roof. So you break a little bit off the table and stick that on the roof. You rip up a bit of carpet, stick that on the roof. You, you know, you break off a little bit of the kitchen bench, put that up on the roof. Get some kitchen basin, put that up on the roof, right? Get some floorboards, put them up on the roof. So you put these little samples of all the different materials that are inside the house, you put them up on the roof of the house so that people driving down the street can look at the roof of your house and they can say, oh, look, they have beige carpets and marble bench tops in their house, right? They can see that from the street because they're displayed on the outside of the house. That's what cells do with the proteins that are inside the cell. They, they sample little bits of protein, all the bits of all the proteins that the cell is manufacturing inside the cell. They process those and put bits of them on the surface of the cell on MHC1. And it's it's like advertising all the different all the different variety of proteins inside the cell are all presented on the outside of the cell. 
that's what MHC is all about. And that's what we mean by these self antigens. And your immune system is trained to recognize those antigens presented on MHC1 as self. The, the whole upshot of this, of course, is that if the, if the cell is producing a protein inside it, which is non-self, like a virus, for example, if it's reproducing virus proteins, it's going to, just like all the other proteins, it's going to put those on the surface as well. Right? So it, it's like if somebody puts some, I don't know, like a, a, like a foreign object inside your house and you broke some of it off and put it up on the roof, that would be presented together with all the self bits that are presented there as well. Right? So a cell that's infected by a virus, on its MHC, a lot of the MHC will have proteins that are normal and supposed to be there. They're the proteins that are normally synthesized inside the cell. And in addition, some of the MHC1 complexes will be presenting viral antigens as well, non-self antigens. So I hope that answers that question, Muhammad. Listener Carrie has asked a sort of similar question, but it's this. It says, how does the cell put antigen on MHC if the MHC is on the outside of the cell, right? So, and I can see the I can see the dilemma there, right? You've got these proteins on the outside of the cell, these MHC proteins that are outside the cell on the outer surface. How does the cell put the antigens there? Are the antigens secreted by exocytosis and then they just kind of stick on there, or or does, does the the antigen sort of get pushed up through the antigen through through the MHC? You know, is, is is the MHC kind of got a tube in the middle and the antigen gets pushed up through the MHC to the surface? How does that come about? All right, so it's actually different for MHC one and MHC two. So let's. Let's take those each in turn. Let's start with looking at MHC1. Okay. Now, MHC1 is found on the surface of all nucleated cells in the body, all cells that have a nucleus. That's pretty much every cell in the body except for red blood cells. Now, I'm sure that you know already that inside a cell, proteins are synthesized on a ribosome. And those proteins are all kinds of things, right? They're, they're enzymes, they're carrier proteins, they're protein channels, they're you know, all sorts of proteins in a cell that the cell needs to function. Around about one third of those proteins are taken by a structure in the cell called a proteasome. Now, you probably haven't heard of this. You've heard of ribosomes, I'm sure, but you haven't learned about proteasomes. But about a third of the proteins that come out of a ribosome are grabbed by a proteasome, which chops them up into little short segments, little peptides of about, you know, maybe eight to 12 amino acids of length, you know, some a bit shorter, some a bit longer. But this proteasome, you know, you imagine this this polypeptide coming out of a ribosome, <laughs> and instead of becoming a fully functional enzyme to do a job, it gets grabbed by a by a proteasome, which breaks it up into lots of little peptides. Those peptides are then taken from the proteasome and they enter the endoplasmic reticulum through another protein complex called TAP. TAP, which stands for transporter associated with antigen processing. Transporter associated with antigen processing. <laughs> anyway, the name's not particularly important, but anyway, TAP takes these peptides that are coming out of the proteasome and channels them into the endoplasmic reticulum. Once they get in the endoplasmic reticulum, they you know, move through the endoplasmic reticulum and eventually find their way into Golgi apparatus. And the Golgi apparatus packages them 
into vesicles. And inside those vesicles, there are MHC1 proteins in the membrane of the vesicle. So if you imagine these MHC1 proteins embedded in the membrane of the vesicle with the part that will eventually be on the outside of the cell pointing into the vesicle. And so these bits of protein, these bits of degraded protein, peptides, get attached to the MHC1 inside the vesicle. Then the vesicle moves out to the plasma membrane of the cell and fuses with the plasma membrane of the cell. This is exocytosis. But as as the, the, the vesicle sort of fuses with the plasma membrane, the inside of the vesicle becomes the outside of the plasma membrane. And the MHC proteins that were embedded in that membrane with these degraded peptides are now presented on the outside of the cell. All right, so that's how MHC1 is loaded, okay? They're, it's loaded with endogenous proteins. And by endogenous, I mean proteins that are synthesized inside the cell. That's what endogenous means, inside the cell, created inside the cell. All right, so MHC1 is loaded with endogenous proteins that are degraded by a proteasome, then loaded into endoplasmic reticulum and then Golgi apparatus, and then finally expressed on the surface of the cell as a result of exocytosis. Now, MHC2 is a little bit different. And firstly, I want to say this. MHC2 is only found on very few cells in the body. And most, most importantly, it's found on macrophages, dendritic cells, and B lymphocytes. There are a few other kinds of cells in the body that sometimes express MHC2, like, you know, like the epithelium of the thymus gland, for example, for a short period of time during development. And so on. But generally speaking, the, the only three kinds of cells that have MHC2 are macrophages, dendritic cells, and B lymphocytes. And all three of those cells are phagocytes. That is, they can engulf foreign things. They can engulf bacteria. They can engulf viruses, for example. And that's what MHC2 is all about, where MHC1 expresses little samples of proteins that are produced within the cell, all those endogenous proteins, MHC2 is all about expressing exogenous proteins, that is proteins that are engulfed from outside the cell, brought into the cell by phagocytosis and digested in, inside the cell. Those proteins get expressed on MHC2. So let's talk about how that happens. It's a different pathway. All right, so the first thing that happens is phagocytosis, right? The cell um, engulfs something. And of course, that something, let's say it's a virus, that virus gets engulfed um, and is now enclosed within a sort of a vacuole inside the cell, within a membrane-bound vacuole that we call a phagosome. Right? The phagocyte engulfs it. It's called a phagosome. Is a vacuole containing the virus. Then the phagosome fuses with a lysosome. Now, you might remember that from unit one that lysosomes are a little organelle within eukaryotic cells that contains a whole cocktail of digestive enzymes. It contains lysozyme, the same enzyme that's found in tears that digests bacterial cell walls, but it also contains dozens of other enzymes, digestive enzymes that can, so basically a lysosome has the enzymes to digest just about anything. So whatever this thing is that's been engulfed by the phagocyte, 
when the phagosome containing that parasite or that, that virus or bacteria or whatever it might be, when that phagosome fuses with a lysosome and all those enzymes from the lysosome get into the phagosome, which we now call a phagolysosome. <laughs> it's a great word, right? Phagolysosome. So now within this phagolysosome, we've got the, the virus and we've also got all the enzymes from the lysosome which digest that virus, break it down into lots of little peptides. All right. So now, instead of having a virus in the phagolysosome, we've got lots of little viral peptides, little bits of degraded protein from the digestion of the virus. Now, while all this is happening, the cell is synthesizing MHC2, right? That's part of the normal process of, of a cell that makes MHC2, macrophages, dendritic cells, B lymphocytes. They're synthesizing MHC2. It goes into the through the endoplasmic reticulum into a Golgi apparatus. The Golgi apparatus then produces vesicles that contain MHC2 embedded within them. Those vesicles then fuse with the phagolysosome, right? <laughs> so now we've got this structure inside the cell, which is a combination of the phagosome, a lysosome, and a vesicle from a Golgi apparatus. The phagosome contained a virus, the lysosome contained enzymes that digest the virus, and the vesicle contains MHC2. And they're now all in one big membrane bound enclosure. That membrane-bound enclosure then, there's a few other little details that I'll leave out, but that, that then membrane-bound enclosure then moves to the membrane of the cell, the plasma membrane, and exocytosis happens. So the, the membrane fuses with the plasma membrane. The inside of, of the phagolysosome then becomes the outside of the plasma membrane and the MHC2 is expressed on the surface containing those bits of broken down viral protein. Okay, all right, so just to recap, because this is an important point I think that's missed on a lot of people, is that the purpose of MHC1 is to express on the surface of a cell endogenous peptides, that is bits of degraded protein that are synthesized within the cell on the cell's own ribosomes. MHC2, on the other hand, expresses proteins that are exogenous, proteins that came from outside the cell that were engulfed by the cell by phagocytosis. Now, I feel compelled to say at this point <laughs> that there's a little detail, a little subtlety that I'm leaving out right here. It's juicy, but in order to maintain some suspense in this podcast, we'll circle back around to that uh, in response to a question from a listener in a little while, okay? So for now, though, I want you to hold in your head. I want you to, to keep this nice and clear. I want you to hold in your head that MHC1 expresses broken down bits of protein that were produced inside the cell. MHC2 expresses broken down bits of protein that were engulfed by phagocytosis. Now, do you need to know about endogenous proteins and exogenous proteins and TAP and proteasomes and the way that MHC1 is loaded and MHC2 is loaded? No, I can't imagine that the exam is going to ask you for that kind of detail. What you need to know is that proteins within a cell get loaded onto MHC1 and if a cell has MHC2, it, you know, proteins get loaded onto MHC2 as well. That's what you need to know. 
um, and you need to know which cells have MHC2. The specifics of how they're loaded, well, that's just for your own personal understanding, your own personal edification, because it helps to answer those nagging questions that you have, if you have them, <laughs> about the immune system and how all of this really works. Our next question comes from listener Damien, who asks, why do helper T cells only respond to MHC2? All right, well, the thing is that when a helper T cell, a helper T cell, like any T cell, has a T cell receptor. And in order for a helper T cell to be activated, an antigen needs to fit into the T cell receptor. That is, a complementary antigen needs to bind to the T cell receptor on the helper T cell. But that's not enough. In addition to having antigen bound to its T cell receptor, it also has another protein. Beside the T cell receptor, there's another protein called a co-receptor. And a lot of immune cells have these co-receptors. The co-receptor that's found on a helper T cell is called CD4. Now, you may have heard of helper T cells being called CD4 cells or CD4 plus cells. And the reason why often people refer to helper T cells as CD4 plus cells is because they have the CD4 co-receptor. And what that co-receptor does is it binds to MHC2. Right? If you imagine this protein sticking down from the helper T cell that is specific, it has a specific shape that needs to fit onto the MHC2 itself. All right? So in order for the helper T cell to be activated, it needs to have an antigen that fits into its T cell receptor and an MHC2 that fits its CD4 co-receptor. Both of those things need to happen in order for a helper T cell then to become activated. And that's why helper T cells will only respond to MHC2 and not to MHC1, for example. Because you know if, if a peptide was being presented, like an, as an antigen, was being presented on MHC1, that, that antigen might fit into the T cell receptor of a helper T cell, but that won't activate the helper T cell because it's presented on MHC1. And the CD4 co-receptor on the helper T cell doesn't fit MHC1. It only fits MHC2. In a lot of ways, asking why MHC2 is needed to activate a helper T cell is a little bit like asking, how come you can only log into your email account if you have the username and password? Why can't you just log in with the password? You need the username and the password. If you type in the right password and the wrong username, you can't get into your email account. And if you type in the right username but the wrong password you can't get in either. You need the combination, you need both of them. And that's what a helper T cell is like. It needs both antigen that fits its T cell receptor and MHC2 to fit its CD4 co-receptor. Now, do you need to know about CD4 co-receptors for the exam? I don't think so. I think on the exam, as far as any questions I've ever seen, all you really need to know is that a helper T cell to be activated needs to have an antigen that fits its T cell receptor presented on MHC2. You don't need to be able to explain why that's the case. But isn't it helpful when you do understand it? 
Our next question comes from Sarah, and also Paula and Paulina and a few other people have asked the same question as well. So, um, But I'll, I'll read Sarah's question. Uh, it, it captures this pretty well, I think. She says, can naive B cells be activated by raw pathogenic antigen if they come into contact with it, or does it need to be presented on an antigen-presenting cell? And the answer here, the simple answer, is that it can be either. B lymphocytes can be activated by, say, a virus that runs into its B cell receptor. If the virus has an antigen that fits the B cell receptor, that is the antibody, on the surface of a B lymphocyte, that B lymphocyte can be activated just by that. Doesn't need, unlike a T cell, T cells need to have the antigen presented by an antigen presenting cell. Right? A T cell, you know, like a helper T cell, like we said before, has to have that antigen presented on MHC2 if it's a helper T cell. If it's a cytotoxic T cell, it has to have the antigen presented on MHC1 because, again, it, it, it need, it's got a co-receptor that needs to bind to MHC1, CD8, in the case of a cytotoxic T cell. But B lymphocytes don't have a co-receptor of that type, so they don't need to have the antigen presented on MHC of any type at all. They can just run into a virus that's got the right antigens. If it binds to their B cell receptor, then that will be enough to activate a B lymphocyte. However, they can also be activated if the antigen is presented by an antigen-presenting cell. So if a macrophage or a dendritic cell presents the antigen to a B lymphocyte, that can activate the B lymphocyte as well. And in fact, there's some evidence that B lymphocytes are especially activated by dendritic cells. Um, for some reason, um, there's a kind of dendritic cell called a follicular dendritic cell, which seems to be especially effective at presenting antigens to B lymphocytes and activating them. Um, so, so, you know, nothing is ever simple in the immune system. We've sort of talked about this before. It's endlessly complicated. Uh, and I've just let slip that there's not just one kind of dendritic cell. There are lots of different kinds of dendritic cells. And there are different kinds of macrophages too. There are different kinds of B lymphocytes. <laughs> there are different kinds of T lymphocytes. There are different kinds of helper T lymphocytes, right? So there, there is T, helper T lymphocyte type 1 and helper T lymphocyte type 2. You know, nothing is as simple as the textbooks make it seem. And so there is a lot of complexity in here. But to answer this question, B lymphocytes can be activated just by antigen you know, that, that is on a, a pathogen, like a virus or a bacteria. They don't need to have that antigen presented by an antigen-presenting cell. But they can respond to antigen that's presented by an antigen-presenting cell. And they do respond to antigen that's presented by an antigen-presenting cell, particularly if that antigen-presenting cell is a dendritic cell. Sarah's then gone on and asked a second follow-up question, which is also a good question, and it's this. Are naive cytotoxic T cells the same as the B cells, that is, or can they only be activated by antigen-presenting cells and helper T cells? And then, after clonal expansion, must cytotoxic T cells be reactivated, or are they ready straight after mitosis and go and destroy infected cells? And if they have to be activated, how? Um, and finally, how are helper T cells activated? We've already talked about helper T cells. Right? We've dealt with that. So helper T cells need 
as we said before, MHC2 presenting antigen that fits their T cell receptor. Cytotoxic T cells are kind of similar. They, I mean, they're both T cells, so there's a lot of far more similarity than there is difference. But a cytotoxic T cell needs to have antigen that fits its T cell receptor and that antigen needs to be presented on MHC1. And the reason for that is because it has a co-receptor called CD8. Remember we said helper T cells can be called CD4 plus cells. Well, cytotoxic T cells can also be called CD8 plus cells because they have a CD8 co-receptor. And the CD8 co-receptor only binds to MHC1. So a cytotoxic T cell can only respond to antigen presented on MHC1. But it also needs to have a cytokine secreted by a helper T cell. So it needs that as well. And to use our you know, username and password analogy, it's a little bit like, you know, when I try to log into my bank account, I've got to put in the username and the password, and then the bank sends me a code to my mobile phone, and I've got to put that in as well as a third step, right? That's what it's like. So it needs antigen presented to its T cell receptor. That's like the password. It needs that antigen to be presented on MHC1, that's like the username. And then the bank sends a code to your phone. That's like the cytokine that comes from a helper T cell. It needs that as well before a cytotoxic T cell will be activated. Now, in answer to the second part of the question, once a cytotoxic T cell is activated and it's, it undergoes clone, so that's clonal selection, it undergoes clonal expansion, it starts to make lots of clones of itself, those cytotoxic T cell clones are already activated. So they travel around the body. When they find a cell that has antigen on MHC1, they are equipped, they've got everything they need to kill that cell. They don't need to have a helper T cell come along and supply them with cytokines again or anything. As long as the antigen that fits their T cell receptor is presented on MHC1, they're good to go. All right. They don't, they don't need a code sent from the bank now. All they need is username and password and they're able to kill the cell. And cytotoxic T cells, is probably worth mentioning, can kill a cell in a couple of different ways. Um, on the surface of a cytotoxic T cell, expressed on its surface is a protein called a death ligand. And the death ligand will bind to a death ligand receptor on, on the surface of, of other cells. Uh, and once the death ligand binds to the death ligand receptor, or the death receptor, like the, the death ligand is called FAS. L for ligand, and the receptor is called FASR for receptor. Um, once that happens, that will stimulate the cell to undergo apoptosis. But another way that cytotoxic T cells can kill a cell is they release some compounds. One of them is called perforin, which is very much like some complement proteins. It's, actually, it's very similar to one of the complement proteins that forms this membrane attack complex, and it sort of puts a little, creates a little hole in the membrane, a little pore in the membrane. Um, and through that pore, another compound secreted by a cytotoxic T cell called granzyme can go in through the pore and it also stimulates apoptosis inside the cell. Now, do you need to know that? Do you need to know about death ligands and perforin and granzyme for the exam? Probably not. Probably not. I think all you need to probably know is that they're able to stimulate a target cell to die 
by apoptosis. I think if you know that, that's probably enough. Um, they produce chemicals that cause the cell to die. That's probably enough. You probably don't need to know the names, perforin, granzyme, death ligand. I think those things are satisfying extra detail, probably not necessary. Do you need to know that a cytotoxic T cell is activated by antigen presented on MHC1? Yes, you do. Do you need to know that that's because a cytotoxic T cell has a CD8 co-receptor? I don't think so. Uh, you probably don't need to be able to explain why it needs antigen presented on MHC1. You just need to know that it needs antigen presented on MHC1. Do you need to know that a cytotoxic T cell needs to receive cytokines from a helper T cell, from an activated helper T cell? I think you do, yes. Our next question comes from Saskia, um, who says this, if viruses are intracellular and the cell-mediated response is used against intracellular pathogens, why do we talk about viruses and antibodies? Do both the humoral and cell-mediated responses take place, or does it depend on the type of virus? Good question, right? Because you know that the cell-mediated response, the whole purpose of having a cell-mediated response is to clear intracellular pathogens, pathogens that are hiding inside cells, most importantly, viruses. All right. But if that's the case, um, why do we often talk about antibodies? Like, you know, all this talk about COVID-19, right? You get vaccinated so that you produce antibodies, and yet the COVID-19 is caused by a virus, which is an intracellular parasite. So why do we care about antibodies since antibodies are there to clear extracellular parasites, parasites that aren't hiding inside your cells? Well, the thing is, that, of course, the way that a virus works typically is that it takes over the machinery of the cell. It uses the organelles of the cell and the enzymes in the cell to make new virus particles. Then those virus particles typically lies the cell. They split the cell open and scatter and infect other cells. If you've had a humoral immune response and you've produced antibodies, it's quite likely that when those viruses leave the cell, that they will encounter antibodies, the antibodies will stick all over them between cells, okay? While they're in, you're absolutely right though, Saskia, inside the cell, while the virus is replicating inside the cell, antibodies can't do anything about that. But once the cell is lysed and the viruses get out, then having antibodies there is particularly useful. So, you know, typically this actually raises an interesting question about vaccines. Um, because, and, and, you know, part of your question there too, Saskia, was, uh, you know, does it depend on the type of virus? <laughs> and while the simple answer is that, you know, an immune response involves both the cell-mediated or cellular response and the humoral response, you know, typically, and they're both useful against viruses, while that's true, it does seem that some kinds of viruses tend to induce more one than the other. All right. Some kinds of pathogens, some kinds of antigens seem to activate the humoral response more than the cell-mediated response. The reason for that is complicated, and I'm not even going to go into it, but it has to do, remember I said before that there are different kinds of helper T cells. It has to do with which helper T cells are activated. Um, but and this is, again, this is endlessly complicated. Nobody even really understands this. Uh, but you may have heard 
depending on how widely you read, you may have heard that some vaccines only produce a humoral immune response. They produce antibodies, but they don't produce any cytotoxic T cells. You know, and so we don't end up with any any T memory cells. We only end up with B memory cells. Right? Other vaccines produce both a cellular or cell-mediated and a humoral immune response. And the reason for that difference isn't even really very well understood. People who make vaccines often create the vaccine and then they have to test it a lot to find out whether it produces a cell-mediated response as well as a humoral response. So, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the immune system that nobody understands. All right, But in an ideal world, Ideally and typically, and as far as you really need to care about for the exam, when your immune system encounters a virus, say, you will have both a humoral immune response and a cell-mediated immune response. The humoral immune response will result in you producing both plasma cells and B memory cells. The cell-mediated immune response will result in producing effector cytotoxic T cells and also T memory cells. I think it's worth just adding in here that while both the humoral and cell-mediated immune responses are effective against viruses, as we've just said, only the humoral immune response is effective against bacteria. Right? Because bacteria are extracellular parasites. Typically, bacteria don't inhabit your cells. They don't get into your cells. They're in the spaces between your cells, in the intercellular spaces. And so it's antibodies that are going to stick on those and put those out of action. Okay, Cell-mediated immune response, remember that's effector cytotoxic T cells, killing your cells by apoptosis. That's only effective if the parasite, if the pathogen is inside your cell. But if it's between your cells, outside your cells, then the cell-mediated immune response won't do anything only the humoral immune response will do that. Now, as I said, there are exceptions to anything. There are some species of bacteria, like Salmonella typhi, for example, the bacteria that causes typhoid, that can, in fact, get inside your cells. But those are exceptions and not something that you should probably, you know, when you're in the exam, you should assume that although you may have read, and I know some of you have because it's in some of the textbooks and in some of you have done sacks about Salmonella, even though there are some bacteria that can become intracellular parasites, that's unusual. And as far as the exam is concerned, you should assume that bacteria are extracellular parasites and therefore the cell-mediated immune response is not helpful against them. There was a question, for example, in 2019 that asked about the activation of the immune response against bacteria. And in the assessment report, VCAR said that they did not award marks to students who talked about the cell-mediated immune response because against bacteria, it's not relevant. Okay, so again, just be just be aware of that. I think it's it's an important um, it's an important thing to consider as far as VCAR seems to be concerned. Humoral and cell-mediated immune response are effective against viruses at different stages of their lytic cycle, right? But only the humoral immune response is effective against bacteria. Listener Chiara says, why don't we have an immune response against the food that we eat? Well, the answer to that question is that we do. You know, every time you eat food that you've never eaten before, if that food has proteins in it, then you will have an immune response to those proteins. 
right? Of course, if that weren't the case, people wouldn't be able to have an allergic response to food that they eat, to peanuts, for example. Um, the only reason you could have an allergic response is if your immune system overreacts, if you produce too many IgE antibodies in response, you know, during an, an immune response, that's how you develop an allergy, say, to peanut protein. That wouldn't be possible if you didn't have an immune response to peanut proteins when you ate them, right? So we kind of know that you have an immune response. Um, you know, another example, when I was a kid, um, I was vaccinated against polio using uh, uh, this pink liquid that you drink off a spoon called Sabin. Um, and I don't think that we give that to kids anymore in Australia, but it's still used in some parts of the world to vaccinate against polio. But the point is, an oral vaccine like that wouldn't work if you didn't have an immune response to things that you take into your digestive system. So, you know, totally we have an immune response to things that we eat. Um, every time you eat a protein you've never eaten before, you're going to have an immune response to it. What happens though is over time, um, through a process that I'm not going to get into, but it involves another kind of CD4 cell <laughs> called a Treg cell, um, which you don't need to know about, um, you know, for this course. Um, but in any case, what happens is over time, you develop a sort of a tolerance to those proteins that you've eaten. It's almost like your immune system is taught to ignore them. Um, and that's, we call it oral tolerance. And so, you know, if you've been eating a particular protein all your life, um, you will no longer have a very strong immune response to those proteins. Um, you, you, your immune system learns to ignore those proteins, almost like it considers it to be self now. Um, and I said, the, the way that that desensitization of your immune system happens is quite complex, and you don't really need to understand it. But you know, you may have also had the question might have come up in your mind is, is what about all these natural gut flora, all these bacteria that live in our intestines? You know, we learn about them as as a barrier to infection, the microbiota barrier to infection, as it calls it on the study design. So you're expected to know that we have all these bacteria living in our gut that are part of our first line of defense against infection by bacteria. Well, why doesn't our immune system see them as foreign and destroy them? Well, again, it's the same reason. It's this, this immunotolerance, our immune system develops a tolerance. It, it learns to kind of almost treat them as self. And the same thing happens with food. But if you eat something that you've never eaten before, you know, you go to some weird restaurant that serves you some kind of food that you've never encountered before in your life, sure, you'll have an immune response to that food, to any proteins in that food. It won't make you sick. You won't feel bad or anything, but you'll have an immune response. You'll produce B memory cells and you'll produce you know, antibodies against that food. You, know, you won't even know that that's happening, but it will be happening. All right, And that, of course, um, brings us back to that question earlier in this episode where, where somebody asked about um, the Cas9. You know, can you develop an allergy to Cas9 if that Cas9 is used to genetically modify a crop and you eat the crop? Can, of course, you can have an allergy to that because when you eat that genetically modified crop that contains Cas9, you will have never eaten Cas9 before. That's a new protein and you'll have an allergic, you'll have a, sorry, you won't have an allergic response, you'll have an immune response. And if you have an immune over response in the wrong way, that could be an allergic response. Listener Rihanna's asked a really interesting question, um, and that is, how do antibodies in milk 
get into a baby without being digested by the baby? <laughs> it's a good question, right? Because there's actually two two things I think that are really surprising about antibodies in milk. I mean, you know that all the antibodies, all the different that five different antibody classes are able to get across into the baby from breast milk. But how does that happen, right? Two problems. One, why doesn't the baby digest them, right? Because that's what our digestive system is for, is we eat things with proteins and they go into the stomach where in that very acid environment, which denatures proteins, a protease enzyme called pepsin digests the proteins <laughs> and then they go into the small intestine where more protease enzymes digest them even further. Why doesn't that happen to antibodies? And the second part of the problem is how does a big protein like an antibody get across the membrane of the intestine? Because you know normally proteins are digested into, into amino acids or at least small little peptides. Um, because a protein's too big to cross a membrane. So how does a whole antibody protein get across the baby's digestive system? Great question. All right, let's start with talking about the digestion problem. Um, and that's probably the relatively easy part of the answer, I, I think. And that is that in a baby, the environment of the, the lumen of a baby's stomach is not nearly as acidic as in an adult. And this is part of the reason why babies drink milk and they don't eat solid food. Like when your baby's born, you know, you shouldn't give it steak. <laughs> it won't be able to digest it very well because their stomach is not very acidic yet. Um, and also, you know, the enzymes don't work. Like basically the digestive system doesn't work as well as in an adult, which is why they have to eat you know, very simple food like milk, all right? So that's that's the first thing. Um, nevertheless, they do have an acidic stomach still, and some of the proteins do, in fact, get, um, get digested. In fact, around about one-third to two-thirds of the antibodies are, in fact, destroyed by the acid in a baby's stomach and by enzymes that that digest those proteins. So only maybe one to two-thirds of the antibodies are able to be absorbed by the baby and get into the baby. A lot of them, in fact, are destroyed. Um, another part of the of the uh, the explanation is that the absorption of antibodies takes place in the intestine just after the stomach, right? So it, at the very, very first part of the small intestine, before there's really been very much time for digestion to take place, all right? And so that helps a little bit, right? Because if they, you know, if they were absorbed much further down the intestine, there would have been a lot longer for for the proteins to be broken down by protease enzymes. But because they're absorbed fairly quickly, um, there's not so much time for that to happen. And a third part of the answer to that explanation is that it's been shown that even when, um, when, when antibodies are partially digested, often they're still able to function partially as antibodies anyway. As long as the antigen binding site is still intact, they still have an immune function in the baby, even if it's not a complete antibody anymore. All right. The other part of the question is how is a big protein able to get across into the baby anyway, since proteins are far too big to cross any kind of a membrane? And the answer to that is that there are special receptors in the you know lining the intestines of a baby that are specifically for doing exactly this. Um, they're called FCR. That stands for FC receptor. And the R stands for receptor. FC. Um, 
refers to the FC region of an antibody. You know, you know how an antibody looks sort of like a Y shape, right? Like a capital Y. Well, the stem of the Y is called the FC region of the antibody. And these FC receptors, um, they're in the intestine, like at the very first part of the intestine. So as soon as the antibodies come out of the stomach into the intestine, they'll bind to these FC receptors. And, and that causes the cell to engulf the antibody by endocytosis, and then it travels through the cell and goes out the other side by exocytosis. That whole process is called transcytosis. Right? So the cell engulfs it by endocytosis and then expels it by exocytosis on the other side of the membrane. So that's how the membrane, you know, how the how the the proteins are able to get across the membrane, which is you know pretty fancy, um, isn't it? Anyway, again, look, I don't think you need to know that for the exam. <laughs> you don't need to know about FC receptors, uh, you know, or that there are different receptors for different antibodies or anything like that. Um, although there are, you know, for example, the receptor that brings in IgG is called FC gamma R, right? The gamma meaning G. So, but you don't need to know that for the exam. You don't need to know anything about the receptors. You don't even know, need to know why the antibodies aren't digested by the baby's digestive enzymes or why they're not denatured by the acid in its stomach. All you need to know is that antibodies do get across breast milk into a baby. All right, so um, which, we, of course, we learned about when we learned about passive immunity, natural passive immunity. Remember earlier in this episode, I was talking about how um, different parents will tell their kids different simplified stories about where babies come from. <laughs> they're not untrue, they're just, they leave out a lot of details. And depending on which details you leave out, it, it could seem if two kids are discussing where babies come from in the playground, <laughs> they could both have seemingly different stories and they might think there's a contradiction. There's no real contradiction, they're just two accurate stories that are very imprecise, imprecise, accurate stories that have left out different details, so they seem like there's a contradiction. But of course, there are some parents that tell their children that babies come from under the pumpkins, <laughs> in the pumpkin patch, or that babies are brought by storks. That's a different thing, right? Because those are not accurate. They're untrue. They're inaccurate stories, not just imprecise ones. They're not, they just have detail left out. They're untrue. And this next question fits into that category. And I think this is really important because there are some textbooks out there, VCE textbooks for the current course, who are wrong about this next question. And so I think it's important that we address it well because your textbook could be it. I'm not going to name and shame the textbooks involved, but um, check your textbook and see if it's got it right, okay? But I want you to make sure that you know the correct answer here, or the way that this really is. All right, so the question, a couple of people have asked this, um, not surprisingly. Uh, two of them are, are Christy and Zachariah. And I'm gonna read one of those, one of those emails here now. Um, and it says this, it says, in our textbook, it seems as though a naive T cell is activated by an antigen presenting cell and then differentiates into either a cytotoxic T cell or a helper T cell. Um, and then the helper T cell sends the cytokine to allow the cytotoxic T cell to undergo clonal expansion. Is that correct? 
Well, no, it's not. It's not correct. Check in your textbook. If your textbook says that T cells leave the thymus gland able to differentiate into both a helper T cell and a cytotoxic T cell, and that that differentiation only happens when the T cell is presented by antigen from an antigen presenting cell, and then it differentiates to become a helper T cell or cytotoxic T cell, then your textbook is confused and has it around the wrong way. And that's because there's a difference between T cell maturation, when it becomes mature, and T cell activation. All right, so let's make sure that we have this around the right way. T cells are produced in the bone marrow. And then immature T cells that were produced in the bone marrow then migrate to the thymus gland, which sits at the top of your chest. That's why they're called T cells. The T stands for thymus. But the cells that go into the thymus are immature T cells. Um, and what happens to them in the thymus is that's where they mature. An immature T cell has both CD8 and CD4 co-receptors. That means it can respond to either MHC1 or MHC2. And the process of maturation in, in the thymus gland involves antigen-presenting cells, including dendritic cells, but also the epithelial cells of the thymus gland, which have MHC2 at that stage during embryonic development while you're developing as an embryo. They also have MHC2. Um, those cells present antigen from around your body to these maturing T cells. All right. Now, if they present antigen on MHC1, what will happen is the CD8 co-receptor will respond to the MHC1 and the CD4 co-receptor will be down-regulated, stops being produced. On the other hand, if the antigen is presented to the immature T cell on CD on um, MHC2, then the CD4 co-receptor will be stimulated and the CD8 co-receptor will be down-regulated. Right? The upshot of all of that is that by the time the T cell is mature, which happens in the thymus, by the time a T cell leaves the thymus, it either has CD4 co-receptors or CD8 co-receptors, but not both. Or another way of saying that is that it can either respond to MHC2, or it can respond to MHC1, but not both. And, and a cell that has CD4 co-receptors cannot become a cytotoxic T cell. And, and in the same way, a cell that has CD8 co-receptors cannot become a helper T cell. It's already differentiated enough. It's mature now. It's a mature, naive helper T cell or a naive cytotoxic T cell. It's a, it's a naive CD4 cell or a naive CD8 cell. But it can't switch now. It's too late. It's either one or the other. But it's naive. And, and what we mean by naive is it can still further differentiate. It's not active. It's not an effector cell yet. It's still kind of dormant, but it's already mature. Okay? So that's the first step. And that's what we call maturation. Those mature T cells then migrate to secondary lymphoid tissue, like lymph nodes, for example. And there they wait. And when they're presented with antigen by an antigen-presenting cell, that's when they will be activated. 
right? They're already mature, but they're not activated. That means they can still further differentiate. So a CD8 plus cell, for example, is already a mature cytotoxic T cell, but it's not, it's, it's a naive mature cytotoxic T cell. When it gets presented with antigen on MHC1, then it becomes activated and differentiates to become either a cytotoxic, like an effector cytotoxic T cell, or a T memory cell, a cytotoxic T memory cell. It'll be one of or other of those. But it can't become a helper T cell. It can, it, it'll have to be a cell with the CD8 co-receptor. In the same way, a helper T cell, a CD4 cell, a naive one, can be activated by antigen presented on MHC2. And when it does, it can further differentiate. It it can become an effector helper T cell, or it can become a memory helper T cell, or in fact, it can become a couple of other kinds of cells too, like Treg cells that we mentioned earlier, which are also CD4 cells. That's T regulatory cell. Um, So they are all, but it can't become a cytotoxic T cell because they're CD8 plus cells. All right, does that make sense? So... Again, because this is wrong in the textbook, let me just recap that really briefly one more time. Once a cell leaves the thymus gland, once a T cell leaves the thymus gland, it is destined to either be a cytotoxic T cell, effectively, or a helper T cell. It can't switch, all right? And that that division between helper T cells and cytotoxic T cells happens in the thymus gland, but activation of those naive cells, that happens in the thymus gland, all right? So for those of you who have sent those questions in, um, I hope that really clears that up for you. It's especially confusing, isn't it, when your textbook has it wrong, because then you kind of have to say, (laughs) do I believe the textbook or do I believe this Douchy character? (laughs) Well, you don't have to believe me, but um, believe me, I've spent a lot of time reading about this very issue because of the confusion. And again, I think the confusion comes about because, you know, these cells are differentiating. They're in, you know, in the process of differentiating, and that differentiation takes place in several different stages, right? There's first maturation and then activation. And I think what some of the textbooks have just assumed is that all of that happens in the secondary lymphoid tissue, like in the lymph nodes, that you have these immature T cells that then differentiate to become either helper cells or or cytotoxic T cells. But no, that happens in the thymus gland. Listener Muhammad has asked, I think, a very good question as well. And he says this, just a question regarding B cells. I noticed in your Ed Rollo lesson and many other textbooks that you mainly talked about B cells being activated when they encounter a specific pathogen. The pathogen's antigen matches a specific B cell's membrane-bound antibodies and it undergoes phagocytosis, displaying the antigen now on their MHC2 markers and waiting for a helper T cell with a receptor that can bind to the antigen MHC to come along and signal for them to proliferate. My textbook also says that B cells contain PRRs, which stands for pattern recognition receptors, that enable them to detect and engulf pathogens non-specifically and display their antigens, that is, act as antigen-presenting cells, and initiating the process 
mentioned above. And he's asked, you know, what is what is that all about? You know, what what what's the difference between B cells using their B cell receptors to specifically attached to a, say, a virus antigen, or non-specifically using these pattern recognition receptors and engulfing it by phagocytosis. Um, and so, you know, again, this starts to become a little bit, you know, like we're getting into the weeds here a little bit, but since one of the big textbooks, one of the most popular textbooks in Victoria talks about um, pattern recognition receptors, uh, apparently let's, let's uh, get to the bottom of that. Let me ask you a question. And the question is, what do teachers do? What's the job of a teacher? Now, you would probably say to me that the job of a teacher is to teach students, right? I mean, that is the job of a teacher. But in reality, teachers do lots of other things too. You know, they carry out various forms of discipline. Uh, They protect against strangers coming into the school. They do curriculum development. Um, They, you know, some teachers kind of are involved in student welfare. Um, Other teachers are coordinators. They coordinate teams of other teachers. You know, teachers do actually a whole lot of different things as well as teaching students, right? But teaching students, that's their main thing. That's the thing, that's why we call them teachers, right? Is that's their main thing. But they actually do lots of other things too. And that's true of most cells in the body also. And so when we talk about something like a B cell, you know, the main job of a B cell, it's got these B cell receptors, these antibodies on its surface that bind to a specific antigen, like an antigen on a virus, for example. And when that happens, the B cell will, it, it's stimulated to engulf that virus by phagocytosis. So a B cell is a phagocyte. It will engulf the virus that's bound to its B cell and digest it forms a phagosome, um, you know, a lysosome binds with a phagosome and digests it. And and all those things happen that we talked about before. And the B cell then presents the antigens from that thing that it's engulfed on its MHC2. All right. And that can activate helper T cells. So that's all of that is true. That's what B lymphocytes do. They are phagocytes. They are also covered in in antibodies or B cell receptors. And when when a pathogen with its antigens binds to that receptor, the B cell will, will engulf it by phagocytosis, digest it, present the antigens on MHC2. And by doing that, it can stimulate a helper T cell, which will respond to the MHC2 and the antigen that fits its T cell receptor. It will then release these cytokines that stimulate the B cell itself to undergo, you know, clonal, expansion, right? So so all of that is what happens typically with a B cell. That's its main job. That's like saying a teacher teaches students. That's the thing it's known for. But because a B lymphocyte is also a phagocyte, in a lot of ways, it, it can also act kind of like a macrophage, right? And it has on its surface these these proteins called called pattern recognition receptors. Macrophages have them too, right? So, so it has these pattern recognition receptors that respond to particular patterns that are common on certain microbes, right? like bacteria, for example, particularly bacteria. Um, and, and those patterns of, of molecules we refer to as PAMPs, 
PAMP, which stands for Pathogen Associated Molecular Patterns. And this is a big way that macrophages are able to identify something, say, as a bacteria and engulf it. Like, how do they identify this non-self thing? and engulf it? Well, they recognize particular patterns of molecules that are common on bacteria and not common on our own cells. Okay, And, and these things are called PAMPs, pathogen-associated molecular patterns. And the, the macrophage has a pattern recognition receptor which can identify those various kinds of things that are common on bacteria that stimulates it to engulf it. Plus, of course, often bacteria are covered in complement and there are pattern recognition receptors that will respond to complement as well. So if the complement is stuck on a bacteria, that will stimulate a phagocyte to engulf it as well. But all of that is not only true of macrophages and dendritic cells, but it's also true of B lymphocytes. So if a bacteria happens to bump into a B lymphocyte, even if that B lymphocyte doesn't have a B cell receptor, an antibody that's specific to the bacteria's antigens, Right? So, so the, the antigens on the bacteria, um, they don't fit the antigen binding sites of the antibodies on that, that B lymphocyte. Even though that's the case, if the pattern recognition receptors on the B cell surface respond to the PAMPs on the bacteria, then the B cell is likely to engulf it by phagocytosis, digest it in a phagosome, and and then present the antigens on MHC2 on its surface. And that can activate helper T cells. But what it doesn't do is activate the B cell itself, right? So the B cell now has got antigens sitting on its surface on MHC2, but those antigens don't fit its own B cell receptors. So it's not activating the B cell. The B cell is really just doing exactly what a macrophage would do in the same position. In other words, the B cell kind of, in a way, is a macrophage. I mean, it's not a macrophage, but it, it kind of, you know, there's no macrophage there at the time. The bacteria bumps into a B cell instead of a macrophage. The B cell kind of says, well, no macrophages here. I'll do that job. And they just do it, right? They take over. They do the job that a macrophage would otherwise do. But that doesn't mean that they're activated. They don't start, you know, becoming plasma cells and B memory cells and all of that sort of stuff. They're just presenting antigens that can activate helper T cells. So I hope that answers your question, Muhammad. It's a, it's a really good one. Um, and, and again, this comes back to what I said a bit earlier, that so much research is happening in this field at the moment. I mean, up until 2006, um, it was considered that B cells, in fact, all lymphocytes were non-phagocytic. I mean, they weren't, of course, but that's what everyone thought. <laughs> it's not like there's been any significant change in B cells since 2006, but there has been a significant change in how we understand them. Because if you read any textbook that was published prior to 2006, um, you will read that lymphocytes are non-phagocytic. Right? We now know, as a result of research that was actually done in fish, we now know that B lymphocytes are phagocytic. All right, um, And they can act as a phagocyte quite separate to acting as you know a B lymphocyte that produces plasma cells and what sort of stuff. They, they have two jobs, just like some teachers are both a biology teacher and a year-level coordinator. Two kind of separate jobs that they do that might overlap a little bit, but they're separate and they have different outcomes. Okay, B lymphocytes are kind of like that. Finally, the last question that I want to address comes from listener Muhammad, a different Muhammad, uh, who says, do we need to know about ELISA in capital letters? Um, 
I don't know, to be honest, I really don't know. There is a study design dot point that says that we need to know uh, scientific and social strategies employed to identify and control the spread of pathogens, including identification of the pathogen, for example. So, you know, maybe because it's a scientific method for identifying pathogens, it's worth at least having a, a broad understanding of what ELISA is. But I'd be a little bit surprised if there's a significant question that requires you to know about ELISA. But hey, since you asked, uh, let's talk just a little bit about what this thing called ELISA is. It stands for Enzyme-Linked Immunosorbent Assay. Enzyme-Linked Immunosorbent Assay ELISA. And basically it's a way of detecting whether a particular antigen is present. And the way that it's done essentially is that they, they get some sort of a material, some sort of an adhesion surface that, um, you know, that contains um, sort of the, the antigens sort of stuck onto it, right? So that they, and the, the, the way that they do that, you certainly don't need to know that. It's sort of a chemical process. But they, they sort of will have this, this plate, this adhesion plate that's often made of sort of a polystyrene stuff. And the antigens will be stuck onto that. Whatever antigens are there present in the, you know, somebody's got some sort of bacterial infection or whatever, and you want to know what kind of bacteria it is. So there's a way of preparing this plate so that it'll have the antigens from that bacteria all over it. And then what they do is they cover that plate with a solution that contains an antibody that's covalently bonded to an enzyme, right? So they, they get these antibodies. Um, so let's say we were trying to see if, you know, it was an antigen for, say, the typhoid bacteria, right? Salmonella typhi. So they would have this plate with the antigens from the patient, and then they would have antibodies that they know are specific to that species of bacteria. And attached to the antibodies, there's an enzyme. And let's say it's an enzyme that turns some kind of a yellow substrate into a blue product. Right? Then what they'll do is they'll put the antibodies, they'll, they'll put the plate in with the antibodies, um, and you know, if, if the antigen is there, the antibodies will stick on the antigen, right? And then they'll wash the plate to get rid of any excess antibodies that haven't stuck onto something. And then they'll put on the substrate of the enzyme that's attached to the antibodies. And if the antibodies are stuck to the antigen, then the enzyme will be there and it'll turn that yellow substrate into a blue product. And that color change will tell them that the antigen for that species of bacteria was stuck on the plate that they mix those antibodies with. That's kind of actually hard to explain in words. <laughs> I find myself struggling to explain that in words without a picture. You sort of almost need a picture. Um, but, but the essential idea is if there are antibodies stuck on the plate, then the antibodies specific to them will stick on the antigens. And because those antibodies have an enzyme attached to them, you can see whether the enzyme is there by giving it some substrate and seeing if it produces product. Um, that's, that's essentially the process. Um, it's not a very complicated process. Look, as I said, I'd be even a little bit surprised if, if this is on the exam, if you need to know about it. But I do know that some of the textbooks do mention it. So again, and it's raised some questions. So worth having a little bit of a chat about. Um, I wouldn't be too freaked out about it, <laughs> but uh, you know you could always look up Eliza. Just Google Eliza, and you'll find a diagram, and you'll see what I'm you'll see what I mean. Um, it's not as complicated as I've probably made it sound. Anyway, 
Thank you for joining me for this hour and a half. It's been it's been quite a long episode, but it is fantastic just to be able to answer all those questions. And um, and I really hope that if you've made it through to the end here, you've found it really beneficial too. And I hope some of those things that might have confused you or that you couldn't understand how how it could work, that we've sorted out a few of those issues, and you feel just that little bit more confident that you than you did before. Now remember, a lot of the details we've gone into in this episode aren't really needed as you go into the exam. And again, take the advice from that second or third question we talked about. You know, Do some topical exam-based study. Go back through and have a look at all the questions that VCAR have ever asked about the immune system. And you'll see what I mean. They tend to ask at a pretty superficial level. Um, you certainly don't need to know a lot of the fine details that we've gone into. But I also know how frustrating it is when you just can't get your head around what's really going on. And I do hope that this episode has scratched that itch for you. If you have a follow-up question from anything we've discussed in this episode or any other episode or from something you're learning about in class and you want to get to the bottom of it, please do send me an email and you can send that to biologypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for joining me and I'll look forward to speaking to you next time.